Welcome to Morbidly Insane, a podcast for morbidly insane people, hosted by a morbidly insane girl. On this podcast, you can hear all about cults, true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal activities, history, and all things spooky and scary. Welcome to part 2 of Ted Bundy series. In the previous part, I forgot to put a trigger warning, so I'm really sorry for that, but this time, I did not forget. So, trigger warning for this episode. This episode includes disturbing topics and events such as murder, sexual abuse, trauma, and honestly much more. In the last episode, we were at the part where Ted's crime started appearing in the newspapers and on the news. The next crime that we know of after the one in June happened on the July 14, literally in the middle of the day, like who the fuck commits a crime such as this one in the middle of the day. Ted Bundy, I guess. Uh, so it happened at the late Sammamish State Park. Ted was wearing like a tennis outfit with his arm in a sling, of course. Um, he asked these girls for help in unloading a sailboat from his car, which is of course we already know what car. But I think that the girls that witnessed this weren't sure if it was bronze or tan. I'm not sure though. Um, Ted also introduced himself as Ted. The fuck, I mean, I guess he thought that no one would think that his name was actually Ted because no one says their real name when they're trying to murder someone. Anyways, four girls refused to help him, but not all of them refused. Plot twist, there was no sailboat when they came closer to the car, so... That's when Janice Ann Ott, who was 23, was last seen alive. Also, Denise Marie Neslund, who was 18, was at the park and she went to the restroom, but she never came back. It took two months for their bodies to be found. Since there were witnesses who saw Ted and knew what he and his car looked like, the police now knew what he looked like and his car, because obviously the witnesses told the police. So they put the flyers through Seattle and probably around Seattle. They also made a sketch of him that appeared in the newspapers. Um, so, Elizabeth Clifford, a DES employee, recognized that and reported that she recognized that and his car. But the detective did not believe so because that was apparently too good to do something like that. Ugh. So, in August 1970. Four, Ted received a second acceptance from the University in Utah Law School. So he moved to Salt Lake City. And in this Salt Lake City, there, there are going to be a lot of crimes committed. So get ready for that, honestly. So Ted was disappointed because apparently other students at this university had some intellectual capacity and he didn't so you know his pride was ruined a little and then he went home and cried because everyone is better than him and he is not the best so sad i know okay i'm kidding about this part but that's what i would do um but of course ted couldn't go along without doing some shit to woman so on September 2nd, he fucking raped and strangled a hitchhiker in Idaho. Identity is unknown since Ted told about that murder literally before his death, so we don't know much about that one. 
month later, on October 2nd, Ted Black took a 16-year-old, a fucking child, a 16-year-old, Nancy Wilcox, in a suburb of Salt Lake City. Ted said that her body was buried near Capitol Reef National Park, but it was never found. I don't know if he lied or maybe too much time has passed so the body was probably you know dissolved in the nature or something I don't know but anyways they never found her body then the same month on October 18 Melissa Ann Smith a 70 17 year old daughter of a police chief she disappeared after leaving a pizza parlor. This also happened somewhere in the suburb of the Salt Lake City. Um, her body was found nine days later in an area with some mountains. After investigating her body, they think that she was actually alive for about seven days after her disappearance. Which is honestly pretty scary, especially... If she was just left there somewhere, or maybe he kept her? I don't know, but both sounds awful. So, then again, in the same month, on October 31st, Lara and Aim, who was also fucking 17, she disappeared after leaving a cafe just about after midnight. And her body was found by hikers in American Fork Canyon on Thanksgiving, which was like 24 days later. Um, Both Laura and Melissa were raped, beaten, and other awful stuff like that. And let's listen to this. Um, This is um, disgusting. This thing that he said that he did to them after he murdered them. Uh, When he killed them, when they were dead, obviously. He did their fucking makeup and shampooed their hair. Because that's so normal to even want to do corpses makeup and wash their hair, right? Right? Like, everyone wants to do that. Right? Of course not. Who the fuck wants to do some dead body's makeup and wash their hair? What? Oh god, and we aren't even done yet. On November 8th, Ted approached the 18-year-old Carol DeRange at Fashion Place Mall. So Ted told her that he is like a police officer. He introduced himself as Officer Roseland, and he was like an officer in the Murray Police Department. Anyway, he told Carol that someone attempted to break into her car, and he asked her if she wanted to, you know, file a complaint. But he wanted to go with her, since Ted is such a good liar. Carol knew that he was driving on a road that didn't lead to the police station. So, since he said that he was a police officer, but he wasn't driving on the road that led to the police station, so it was obviously a little sus to her. But, when she pointed that out to Ted, he of course got offended. So he tried to handcuff her, but he was so smart, he fastened the handcuffs on the same wrist, so she was luckily able to escape him. And guess what? That same day later, Deborah Jean Kent, again, a 17-year-old, I know what's his thing for 17-year-olds, But I guess he had a thing for them, I don't know. She was a high school student at Beaumont High School. 
that night at the school there was like a play. They had like a theater, I guess. So they were a good amount of people, of course, since they were watching the play and stuff. So Ted was seen there a few times. Like, I guess he would go in and exit and shit like that. And he would, like, approach people, asking them to go outside with him. Like, he was also approaching the teachers. They were all women. I mean, I didn't see that they were, but you know them well that they were women. Because he didn't care about men being dead. Because, you know, of course, men supremacy. Anyways, he was in that theater and then he sat behind Deborah and her family and he introduced himself as like a theater usher. He took Deborah with him and people thought that Ted killed her here, there in the school like in the school's parking lot or around the school but actually he did not he later said that he took her in his car and took her to his apartment and killed her there remember Elizabeth Cleffer well in November she called the police again for the second time remember before when she called and they didn't believe her because they thought that Ted wouldn't do something like that. Well, she called again because she noticed that young women were disappearing around Salt Lake City. Then Detective Randy of the Major Crimes Division asked her like for details and interviewed her. He wanted to know like the more details, of course. So in December, Elizabeth called Salt Lake country sheriff's office and again said that she thought that Ted was sus so his name was added to the list of suspects but since there was no forensic evidence of him being the one who committed the crimes they couldn't really do anything at the time so honestly that was shit then in January 1975, basically about a month later, like since it was December, now we're obviously in the other year, in January, so Ted returned to Seattle because he finished his exams, his final exams were done, and there he spent a week with Elizabeth, but she didn't tell him about that she reported him to the police honestly I don't think that I would either because I think that I would be scared that he would kill me or something so that was smart of her god if you thought that we were done well you were wrong we are not done on January 12th Karen Aileen Campbell a 23-year-old nurse disappeared in the hallway when walking between the elevator and her room. This happened at the Wildwood Inn, which will now be Wildwood Lodge, in Snowmass Village. Ted killed her with a sharp weapon, leaving deep cuts all over her body, and also by blows to her head from a blunt instrument that damaged her skull a lot of course and then her body was found a month later nude next to a dirt road then on march 15th julie cunningham uh who was 26 and worked as a whale ski instructor so she disappeared while she was walking from her apartment to a dinner date with her friend. So Ted approached her and asked her to help him carry his ski boots. Honestly, real question though. How the fuck can someone believe that a six feet tall man 
isn't able to carry his own ski boots by himself. I guess she believed him and helped him. He took her to his car where he handcuffed her and then sexually assaulted her. And then he strangled her. And a few weeks later, Mr. Ted drove six hours from Salt Lake City to Riffle, where he left her body, so that he could visit her body, which is disgusting. Then, on April 6th, Denise Lynn Oliverson, she was 25, she disappeared while riding her bike to her parents' house near the Utah-Colorado border. Her bike and sandals were later found near a railroad, railroad bridge. Gosh, I'm so bad at, at, pronouncing, at pronouncing stuff. Mm, please excuse me. Anyways. Now, this is the worst case, the worst and the most disgusting one, because this victim was only 12 years old. Her name was Lynette Down Culver. On May 6th, Ted drowned her in his hotel room and disposed her body in a river. We are not sure which river, though, exactly. But they think it was the Snake River nor north of Pocatello in Idaho, where she was from, actually. Honestly, since he was killing woman that looked like his ex, um... How can a 12-year-old remind you so much of that woman that you decided to kill her? No comment. Then, in the middle of May, three Ted's co-workers from Washington State DES, they visited him in the Salt Lake City, where he was living at the time. So they were... With him for some time. Then, in early June, he visited Elizabeth in Seattle. You know, remember Elizabeth? She's the one that reported him to the police. Mm, Well, she still didn't tell him that she reported him to the police. Then, on June 28th, Susan Curtis disappeared from the campus of... Brigham Young University in Provo. So her murder became Tad's last confession tape recorded moments before he entered the execution chamber. So in Washington State, investigators were, were still trying to find who did all these awful things, who committed all these murders, these crimes. They were still trying to find they were they were in, investigated in this case still um so they they knew some details about this person this person that we know now is Ted Bundy but at the time they didn't know that it was him but they they knew some details about him so they used the country payroll computer. So they were looking for the Volkswagen owners that were named Ted. Also, they were searching for known sex offenders. And of course, there were many people that popped up. But they decided to make like a list of prime suspects. And Ted Bundy was on the list. He was actually on like the top of the list, one of the main suspects. Because the 
so they officers they started realizing that that Bundy was probably the one who did all this shit because it was all too well aligned up because everything was going back to Ted Bundy and they were kind of observing him for a little and they saw him in his little beetle car and he started driving faster when he saw that police was watching him so you know that's already a little sus if you ask me and then they saw that in his car uh, the front passenger seat has been removed and placed on the rear seats and so they searched the car so they found a ski mask then a second mask fashioned from pantyhose nah pantyhose I'm not sure how exactly you pronounce that but anyways they found a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, a coil of rope, an ice pick, and some other sus stuff. So they assumed that all these things were some tools that you use for things that you aren't supposed to do. So Ted tried to explain himself why he has these things. So he said that the ski mask was for skiing and that he found handcuffs in a dumpster and that the rest were like common household items, which practically they are. But the combination of the items that he has is a little little sus, if you ask me. So practically they didn't have the exact evidence but they remember that they received a phone call from Elizabeth no remember Elizabeth and he she reported Ted Bundy and they also remember how the witnesses described Ted Bundy and his car in November last year when he kidnapped someone you know so they searched ted's apartment police found the guide to colorado ski research with a check mark by the willwood inn and a brochure that advertised the vehement high school play in bountiful where you know that girl disappeared. Mm, so, but Ted Bundy later said that searchers missed a hidden collection of Polaroid, Polaroid photographs of his victims, which he destroyed after he was released because he was arrested in Utah on August 16th. But after they did this research, and investigated him and the cases. Practically, they didn't have the exact evidence to keep him in jail or prison, whatever. So they released him. So that, you know, got rid of those pictures. So they, the police officers, were a little, you know, not too smart to find the pictures. Also, it's so disgusting that he took Polaroid pictures of his victims. No no comment. Honestly, no comment. So since Ted was released, Salt Lake City Police placed Ted on 24-hour surveillance and Thompson 
which was like a detective or something. He flew with two other detectives to Seattle to interview Elizabeth. So she told them some interesting things. She told them that in the year prior to Ted's move to Utah, she had discovered objects that she, she says, quote, couldn't understand, which sounds interesting. She found those things in her house and Ted's apartment. So apparently these items included a bag of plaster of Paris that he admitted stealing from a medical supply house and a meat cleaver that was never used for cooking apparently and crutches. So I guess that, I mean, those items are a little sus if you ask me because I don't think that everyone really needs them if you ask me. And, you know, uh, some other objects included sur- surgical gloves and ori- oriental knife in a wooden case that he kept in his glove compartment, compartment. and a sack full of women's clothing. So, you know, a little sus. And Ted was in debt. And Elizabeth suspected that he had stolen almost everything of, you know, significant value that he had. So, for example, um, clothes or whatever that he had, she thought she was sure that he stole everything. Which, honestly... I don't blame her, since he was in such a big debt, so I'm pretty sure that he couldn't really afford stuff, you know. She, you know, confronted him over a new TV and all that stuff, and apparently he warned her, I quote, If you tell anyone, I'll break your fucking neck. So, you know, that's um, a little aggressive, a little aggressive response, if you ask me. And she also said that Ted become very upset whenever she wanted to cut her hair, which was long and parted in the middle. Mm-hmm. And she will sometimes awaken in the middle of the night to find him under the bed covers with a flashlight, examining her body. Oh my, imagine you have a boyfriend or even a husband and you wake up in the middle of the night and you see him with a flashlight, you know, just examining your body really closely. And seeing all parts of your body, like, really closely, you know? Really investigating your body and examining it. That would be... Um, creepy. I would scare... That would scare the fuck out of me. I would... You know, get a divorce. <laughs> right away. Because that's normal I'm pretty sure so you know Ted did all this other weird stuff he also kept a log ratch taped halfway up the handle in the truck of her car which was also another Volkswagen Beetle which he often borrowed so you know and apparently He did that for protection. So the detectives confirmed that Ted had not been with Elizabeth on any of the nights during which 
the Pacific Northwest victims had vanished, nor on the day Oat and Nesland were abducted from Lake Sammamish State Park. So, you know, that's a little sus. And also, um, later, Elizabeth was interviewed by serial homicide detective Kathy McChesney. And she learned of the existence of Stephanie Brooks, which had like a little brief and you know, she saw Ted around Christmas in 1973. So, you know, she saw him. I don't know if they talked much or anything. But, you know, she was one of the rare people that had, like, contact with him, I guess. Later in September, Ted sold his car, which we know is Volkswagen Beetle. He sold it to a Midwell teenager. So when police found out that he sold his car, they decided to search it and they found some hair. And that hair matched to three of his victims. Um... Since those three people never met and they were never together, it was pretty sus that he had hair of those three different people that never met. So that led even more to him being the one that committed all these awful things, obviously. Then, on October 2nd, detectives put Ted into lineup. And there he got recognized by the woman that he told that he was Officer Roseland. Remember that? And also witnesses from Bountiful recognized him as the stranger at the Viewmont High School. So that was some evidence also that lent him to some other victims. For example, some of them, their body was never found, so they couldn't prove it with the DNA but you know they there was some evidence and there was enough evidence to charge him with kidnapping and attempted criminal assault in one case and he was freed on $15,000 bail paid by his parents and spent most of the time between in this cement and trial in Seattle, living in Elizabeth's house. So, then in November, uh, the three principal Ted Bundy investigators, Jerry Thompson and Robert Keppel and Michael Fisher, they met in Aspen in Colorado and they exchanged information with 30 detectives and prosecutors from five states. And keep in mind, Jerry was from Utah, Robert was from Washington, and Michael was from Colorado. So until then, the officers and detectives from different states weren't in contact. And since Ted, since Ted was committing these crimes in different states, it was difficult to kind of think that they were all connected. But now that the 
investigators from different states got all together and exchanged information, it was a little more obvious. So they knew that Ted was the murderer. And they agreed that more hard evidence would be needed before he could be charged with any of the murders, which was a little difficult and annoying, honestly. Because imagine you're so sure that someone is the murderer, but you don't have enough evidence to get him in jail. Annoying. Then in February 1976, Ted Bundy stood the trial for the the wrong ranch kidnapping. Um, So on the advice of his attorney, which name was John O'Connell, he waived his right to jury due to the negative publicity surrounding the case. So the trial lasted four days. Um, Then the judge, Stewart Hanson Jr., found him guilty of kidnapping and assault. Then in June, he was sentenced to prison. Uh, He was sentenced to 15 years in the Utah State Prison. Um, You know... But guess what? Ted wasn't... He wasn't exactly stupid, I wouldn't say. Because in October, he was found hiding in the bushes in the prison yard carrying what they called escape kit, which had road maps, airline schedules, and a social security card. So... And also, he spent several weeks in solitary confinement. I'm so bad at pronouncing, I know. But he started being a little sus. Because they thought that he's going to escape. Which we'll get to later. And later that month, Colorado authorities charged Ted with Campbell's murder. After a period of residence, he evaded extradition proceeding and was transferred to Aspen in January 1977. Now, I said about the escapes. We're basically getting to them now. So, on June 7th, 1977... Ted was transported from the Garfield Country Jail in Glenwood Springs to Pitkin Country Courthouse in Aspen for a preliminary hearing. So he had elected to serve as his own attorney. And, you know, and such, he was excused by the judge from wearing handcuffs or like stuff that you know like hold him during the trial because he was basically his own lawyer i mean remember he did did go to law school so he did know some shit but it wasn't that good because spoiler alert his dad's because of the execution. So you know uh, his own lawyer stuff wasn't a good idea. <laughs> now we're coming to his first escape. So he asked to visit the courthouse law library to do some research for his case. Because I mean, it makes sense since he wasn't like an actual lawyer, so I guess they believed that he would need to do some research. And he opened a window and jumped out of it. He w- that was actually on like the second floor, so 
he got a little injured. He injured his right ankle. So that doesn't sound pleasant. But he wasn't stupid, you know. He got his chance and used the chance. So basically, Ted walked through Aspen as roadblocks were being set up on its outskirts. Then he hiked southward onto Aspen Mountain. So he broke into a hunting cabin and he stole some stuff like food, clothing and stuff that he needed. And he stayed there for a little. And the next day he left the cabin and continued south toward the town of Crested Butte. But he lost. He got lost in the forest. (laughs) No comment. And for two days he was, you know, just going around the mountains. And he actually missed two trials. So, you know, that was a little difficult. Because they were like, where the fuck is Ted Bundy? Like, we need to have a trial. And where the fuck is he? So, you know, they obviously tried to find him. A few days later, he stole a car at the edge of Aspen Golf Course. So he was cold. He had lack of sleep. He was in a constant pain from his injured ankle. And he drove back to Aspen, where two police officers noticed his car waving in and out of its lane. And they pulled him over. And he had been missing for six days. And in the car were maps of the mountain area around Aspen. And that map was used to demonstrate the location of Campbell's body. Since Ted was his own lawyer, he had rights to discover some stuff. So he had... Rights of discovery, right. So this indicated that his escape was not a spontaneous act, but it has been planned. So, you know, he he isn't stupid. He was kind of intelligent. But he got back in jail in Glenwood Springs. But guess what? Ted already made a plan for a new escape. He had a detailed floor plan of the Garfield Country Jail and Hexablade from other inmates. And he also had $500 in cash. So he made a hole about one square foot between the steel reinforcing bars in his cell ceiling and he actually lost 35 pounds so he could fit in that little hole so in the following weeks he was exploring the space a little bit you know and by late 1977 the Ted's trial has become like a little famous thing in Aspen, which was a small town. On December 23rd, the Aspen trial judge granted the request, but Colorado Springs, where juries had historically been hostile to murder suspects. Then on the night of December 30th, with most of the jail staff on Christmas break and non-violent prisoners on, like, full loth with their families. 
dead piled books and files in his bed. Covered them with a blanket to simulate his sleeping body. And he climbed into the crawl space. So he escaped through that little hole that he made. And since he was skinny because he lost 35 pounds, he could easily fit. Maybe not easily, but he could fit. So he escaped. He broke through the ceiling into the apartment of the chief jailer, who was out for the evening with his wife. So he wasn't at home. And guess what? That changed into the clothes from the that man's closet. He was a jailer. And he just walked out of the front door to freedom. So he stole a car and he drove eastward out of Glenbourne Springs. But the car soon broke down in the mountains. So, a passing motorist gave him a ride into Vale, to the east. And from there, he caught a bus to Denver, where he boarded a morning flight to Chicago. So, his plan was probably here to go to Seattle, I guess. Back in Glenwood Springs... The jail skeleton crew did not discover the escape until noon on December 31st, which was more than 17 hours later. And by then, Ted was already in Chicago. So, you know, they could have been a little faster. Um, but they weren't. <laughs> so, good for Ted. Good for Ted. Then from Chicago, Ted traveled by train to Ann Arbor in Michigan, where he was present in a local tavern on January 2nd. Which is a little funny, not gonna lie. And to be honest, I'm wondering what the fuck is he doing in Michigan, but okay. Five days later, he stole a car and drove south to Atlanta, where he boarded a bus and arrived in Florida on the morning on January 8th. So he was having a little trip around the United States, I guess. He stayed for one night at a hotel before he rented a room under the alias Chris Hagen at the boarding house near the Florida State University campus. So, he wasn't that dumb this time, I guess. Ted later said that he initially resolved to find legitimate employment and refrain from further criminal activity, knowing that he could probably remain free and undetected in Florida as long as he did not attract the attention of police. But his loan job application at the construction site had to be abandoned when he was asked to produce identification. So, uh, he had a plan that he is not going to do illegal stuff, I guess. So, he thought that if he wasn't drawing any attention from the police, he could remain free forever. Since he was all the way in Florida. But, of course, this is Ted Bundy. He cannot live without doing illegal stuff. So he did some shoplifting, stealing money and credit cards from women's wallets. So 
you know. Then in the early hours on January 15th, one week after his arrival there in Florida, um, Ted entered FSU's Chi Omega sorority house through a rear door with a faulty locking mechanism. So, like I said, he just couldn't live without doing illegal stuff. Sad. I know. That's literally so sad, but I guess that was his reality. I don't know. It would have been good if the only illegal stuff that he did was just shoplifting and stealing money and credit cards. But that was not the only thing. So when he arrived there at the sorority house, beginning at about 2.45 a.m., he did something. He blood-gained, blood-gained Margaret Bowman, who was 21 at the time, with a piece of oak firewood as she slept. Then he garroted her with the nylon stocking. He then, after that, entered the bedroom of Lisa Lavi. She was 20 years old and he beat her until she was unconscious and he strangled her. He also, oh my god, he bit one of her nipples. But he also bit deeply into one of her butt cheek and he also sexually assaulted her with a hair mist bottle this is like the what the fuck moment like what the fuck literally what the fuck no comment in an adjoining bedroom he attacked Kathy Kleiner he broke her jaw and he deeply lace rated her shoulder and Karen Chandler, who suffered a concussion, broken jaw, loss of teeth, and a crushed finger. So Chandler and Kleiner survived the attack, which was good, obviously. And they attributed a survival to automobile headlights illuminating the interior of their room and frightening away the attacker. So Ted escaped. But he was seen by a sorority sister, Nita Neri, who came through the back door and saw Ted as he was exiting the house. So the detectives determined that the four attacks took place in a total of less than 15 minutes with earshot of more than 30 witnesses who heard nothing. Little weird. After Todd left the sorority house, he broke into a basement apartment eight blocks away and attacked a student, Cheryl Thomas. So he dislocated her shoulder and fractured her jaw and skull in five places. So she was left with permanent deafness and a big damage that ended her dance career. On her bed, police found a semen. 
and a, like a mask containing two hairs similar to Ted's in class and character characteristic. So that was already pretty sus, if you ask me. Then on February 8th, Ted drove to Jacksonville in a stolen van. So then he, in a parking lot, approached a 14-year-old Leslie Parmenter. She was actually the daughter of the Jacksonville Police Department's chief of detectives. And he identified himself as Richard Burton, fire department, but retained when Parmenter's older brother arrived and confronted him, which was very, very lucky for Leslie. Like, she was so lucky that her older brother arrived just on time. Um, that afternoon, Ted backtracked 60 miles to Lake City. At Lake City Junior High School the following morning, um, 12-year-old Kimberly Diane Leach was summoned to her homeroom by a teacher to retrieve a forgotten purse. Sadly, she never returned to class. This is really sad and disgusting. She was only 12 years old, which is a child. Seven weeks later, after an intensive search, her partially mummified remains were found in a big farrowing shed near Souvain River State Park which was northwest of Lake City. She appeared to have been raped, then killed by neck laxitorations with a knife. So, he's not only a murderer, he's also a pedophile, which makes him even worse, if you ask me honestly. On February 12th, Ted stole a car and three days later, at around 1 a.m., he was stopped by a police officer, David Lee, near the Alabama state line. David Lee told Ted that he was under arrest, but Ted kicked his legs out from under him and started running away. David Lee fired two warning shots, then gave chess and tackled him. So the two of them struggled over David Lee's gun before the officer finally subdued and arrested Ted. So as you can see, Ted was literally fighting with a police officer. I mean... And it, in that stolen vehicle... They found three IDs that were stolen from the female students for FSU. And they were also 21 stolen credit cards and a stolen television set. So, three stolen IDs, 21 stolen credit cards and a stolen television set. So that's like a lot of stolen stuff. And they also found a pair of dark rimmed glasses and a pair of blade slacks. Um, like those blade slacks were later identified as worn by Richard Burton Fire Department. Remember when he was pretending that he was Richard Burton? Well, he was wearing them then. Uh, so as David Lee transported his suspect, a.k.a. 
dead to jail, he was unaware that he just arrested one of the FBI's 10 most wanted people. And he heard Ted say, I wish you had killed me. This episode was pretty long, so I want to make a part 3. And that will be the last part. So if you want to find out about his future trials and everything, his execution, please subscribe to this podcast and keep listening to the future episodes.